James chapter 2. What I'll do is I'm going to go ahead and read James chapter 2, and then I'll pray and we'll unpack what the Lord has for us today. James chapter 2, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, might be a little different for you guys. Starting in verse 1, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring or fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or literally taking bribes? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Good job. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish persons, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pray with me, Jesus. We thank you for being present. We thank you that, Lord, you love the gathering of your people together. But God... Uh, the most thing that we seek now is we seek you. We seek you speaking to us, Jesus. We speak what you have to say to us, Jesus. And so, Lord, we give you this time and yield our hearts to what the Spirit wants to do. God, we love you, and we thank you for the grace that you have so lavished upon us. And God, I pray for this Carpinteria area, the Venturia area, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that you would equip your church today so that they might go out on mission this week, preaching the beautiful, gracious gospel that you've entrusted to us. 
And so equip us where we need to be equipped. Exhort us where we need to be exhorted. Uh, Come alongside us to encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, we make this time about you now, Jesus. We praise you, God. Take these lips, forgive the sins of the preacher, and use, Lord, me as a vessel for the preaching of your good gospel. In the name that is above every name, in heaven and on earth, in Jesus' name, amen. I have a quote to read to you, but before I read you the quote, I want to set it up in a uh, sense. It comes from a book that I'm reading right now called The Cost of Discipleship, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And his book written is unique because it was written in 1937, Nazi-occupied Germany. And it was written uh, during a time when the church was vacillating and going with the opinions of men, where the church was lukewarm and the church was not standing up against the injustice that was Nazi Germany and the racism that was happening. Uh, the persecution that was happening to the races. And Bonhoeffer writes to the church to try to stir them up in this underground movement. And one of the things uh, that he wants to do is it wasn't because there was no church taking a stand. There was a church present. But it wasn't a religious kind of church that just believed, you know, that I can do A, B, and C on the moral list and make myself uh, acceptable to God. But he writes to a church largely uh, that he that believed in something called cheap grace. And so he writes, cheap grace is the enemy of the church. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. An intellectual assent to the idea held to be itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship, grace without a cross. And so he looks at the situation in Germany, at the church that isn't standing up against the injustice, and, it, and he looks and he says the reason for this and the problem is this intellectual sense, this understanding, and here was churches founded by Martin Luther himself, where they came in, they believed that, you know, okay, we're saved by grace, not by works, uh, but it was just an intellectual profession that they had. There was no impact of that grace that melted the will, changed the heart, and led to radical discipleship. And so I love what he says because what he doesn't do is he doesn't rise up and say, now you need to get up and now you need to just try harder and now you need to follow this and spell it out. But what he calls them to is he calls them to something called costly grace. The other side of the coin, grace must be free. And that's from our perspective, isn't it? Otherwise, it leads to legalism. It leads to us, okay, now I have to pay God back or earn my salvation. And he does not come against the freeness of grace, but he says you're only seeing it from one side, one perspective. You have not yet seen the costliness of grace to God. And so he writes, costly grace is the gospel of the church. It is costly because it costs a man his life and grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life.
And so he writes that the church would have a a resurgence of understanding the costliness of grace. James is dealing with a very similar situation. James is writing to Jewish Christians. We find in verse 1 there, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians who live outside of Israel. And here, some of them have come out of Judaism, uh, have come out from under the burden of performing, uh, and they have counted the cost, and they've identified with Christ. The grace of the gospel has changed them radically. But some have moved from extreme legalistic Judaism to the other extreme, which is antinomian Christianity. They replaced a works-based religion with something that required no works at all. It was just something they looked at and saw, oh, I, I like this. This is, this is good, you know, and, and I don't like. And they saw the impossibility of trying to perform under the burden, not only of the law itself, but over the traditions that the rabbis continually added one upon another upon another. And they look and they say, I like this, this is good. And so they give an intellectual assent, they give a profession of faith, and yet what happens is they're not changed by the message, they're not changed by the gospel. So James writes a series of tests in his letter uh, to make sure that the gospel has really gripped us, that the gospel has really changed us. And James himself was changed by this gospel. James, who writes this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Can you imagine Mary and Joseph, and they're like, why can't you be more like your brother? (laughs) It's kind of a standard. It's a hard one, right? But he grows up with Jesus, and he's got these expectations of the Messiah himself. We find out in John chapter 7, after Jesus preaches a sermon that literally clears out the 20,000 plus people following him, the disciples, he preaches a message. They look at him and go, this is too difficult. This is too hard. Who can understand this? And so literally, he's left with the 12. And so his brothers rally around him in John chapter 7, and they're like, you got to go up to the feast, and the Feast of Tabernacles is happy. you got to reveal yourself, and if you you're the Messiah. Don't do these things in secret. Why are you always working in Galilee and off in these pockets? Go up and go big. Because they thought the expectation of the Messiah, the Messiah was going to come in with power and authority and that he was going to take the Roman oppressors and that he was going to put them down and he was going to place his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign and change everything from there. And they were offended at him by the way he did things to the point where Mark 3 verse 21 says that they try to do an intervention. They come to Jesus, his brothers and his family, and they try to say, hey, let's, let's rethink this. You're out of your mind. And then the story falls silent with James until Acts chapter 1 verse 13 and 14. And we find James praying after the ascension of Christ with the other apostles and disciples, praying, praying, praying. What had happened? And the historians, the early church historians tell us that James actually, he got this nickname called Camel Knees. (laughs) I like James the Just, but you know, the reason for it is 
is because he would pray and he would spend so much time on his knees that his knees formed these, these not kind of things. The Pharisees at one point had come in and they said, James, you have the ear of the people. And so what we need you to do is we need you to calm this movement. This, these people are getting crazy and out of hand about this whole Jesus thing. And so what we want to do is we want to put you up on top of the, the peak of the temple and we want you to preach from there. And James is like, Perfect. And so he gets up there and literally he starts preaching, but he preaches Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They don't like him. They give him the old push off the peak and he falls, not yet dead. So they begin to stone him. He gets up and he begins to pray for them. But he's martyred in that way. What took place? What happened? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the resurrected, the beautiful, nail-scarred Messiah appeared to James. Specifically. Now here was the one and he got it. He got the gospel. And all the expectations he realized that Jesus came not to save through power. But through weakness. Not to sit on a throne. But to save the world by going to a cross. And so an amazing thing. An amazing change happens. And James looks at those who profess the same nail-scarred Christ. And he goes, it's an impossibility to think that you can profess this and not be moved and not be changed. Do you want to be willing to give your arm or your eye to follow one so beautiful, so great and gracious? And so he writes this letter, possibly one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, to these Jews of the dispersion, these tests to show that they are truly in the faith. And so he writes, and in chapter 2 specifically, do you have a living faith or do you have a dead faith? Do you have a living faith? Is it vibrant? Is it alive? Is it producing fruit? Is grace gripping you? Or is life as it is? Is there no change? Is there no difference? And so he doesn't fight the Galatian heresy of those who are trying to perfect themselves by adding to the righteousness of Christ through their works. But now he's coming to those who think that it's just mere profession. I, just, I, I understand that. I wrestle with that. I, I grapple in my understanding but have no fruit in their life. And so we'll look at this morning, number one, the test of faith, verse 14 to 26, the test of love, number two, and then finally, costly grace. A lot of confusion about this last portion of James comes from a misunderstanding of the way that James uses his terminology. On our way up, actually, uh, we had made a stop. I brought my family uh, with me, coming down, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, and so they, they were rolling down, and we had stopped, and, and my son, Ryden, uh, had done something, and my wife had commented, and she said, good job, Ryden. And he's like, thanks, Mom. Wait a minute. What do you mean, good job? Uh, we're a sarcastic family sometimes, and so our kids are constantly wondering the definition. Happy Father's Day. Uh, but anyways, and so... And so my, my wife said, no, good job. I'm really saying good job. But there's that sense that you can say one thing and yet there can be different meanings to it. Some of you have heard the sentence, uh, and it sounds very one-sided, doesn't it? A woman without her man is nothing, right? That's, wow, why would you say such a thing? But you put two commas in there and you get something completely different. A woman without her man is nothing, 
You can get the term awful, right? And that term used to mean full of awe. Awful, full of awe. Now it means terrible. And so when Paul uses the term justified, he uses it in a sense to be made right. Say that I have a debt and I want to justify myself or I want to be made justified. I want to be made right with that debt. And so either I make payment or somebody makes payment because I can't make payment. And now I'm declared just. I'm declared made right. And yet the same term, it's even used nowadays if the IRS comes and the IRS says, uh, you know, justify yourself that you are out of debt. What are they asking? They're asking for proof. They're asking for proof that payment has been made. And so you provide receipts. You provide receipts. And so you have to understand this, that, that James and Paul, they're not contradicting one another. They're complementing one another. And when James in this passage is talking about faith, when he's talking about justification, he's talking about profession and he's talking about uh, evidence, giving evidence of the faith. Here's the thing. Notice with me in uh, verse 5 there that James has already, even in this chapter and every chapter, assumes the gospel. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And so there's that heir, uh, somebody who gets an inheritance. And so think about it, an inheritance versus earning a wage. What's the difference between the two? Wages come when you earn something, right? An inheritance is something that's already there. Wages come because of something you do, and inheritance comes because of what you are. Wages come through your efforts, inheritance comes because of your relationship with someone. So James is saying we're saved by grace. It's assumed in his letter that you are saved by grace. You're not saved by your works, but you are proven that salvation is genuine and real by your works, by the fruit of your profession. And so he addresses first in uh, verse 14 there, uh, a dead faith. And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? And so the first person is the person who is merely a professor. Uh, he's merely one who professes faith in God. He merely uh, has, and he goes back to the idea that, you know, when I was a kid, I think I prayed or I was baptized. My parents had me in a church once, and, you know, I prayed the sinner's prayer or whatever it is. And so here is a mere professor of faith. I remember being, when I was young, in a Sunday school service, and I remember the teacher, uh, who was very good at getting a response, uh, said to all the children, said, now comes a very important question that I must ask. Do you want to go to heaven with your mom and dad or burn in hell forever? I mean, it was like a revival. <laughs> What happens is, so often, there's something because of some reason. I'm doing this to get something from God, not because I find God beautiful for who he is in himself. And then verse 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? 
It's also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. And here's a person who appears very spiritual. They've got the lingo down. They've got the be warm, be filled. Let me pray for you. They're in the prayer meetings. They look spiritual. They've, they, I mean, they've, they've got the Christian music playing, you know, in their car as soon as you get in, queued up to the, you know, the song. And, and you know, they buy a Thomas Kincaid painting or something, you know, and, 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 they, and they get a shirt and, you know, they've got the thing and, and they look very spiritually. They've got all the Christian lingo down, but yet they have no compassion. There's no pity over people who are in a state that they're in. Or we're in. So you've got a person who looks outwardly very spiritual. Think about it like this. Think about a piece of dynamite. And you've got a piece of dynamite. And you can have it, you know, and it looks amazing. And I don't know why dynamite. But anyways, and so you've got this thing. And it's got the, you know, the fuse on it. And you light the fuse. And, and, and it can look solid. It can look secure. Unless you're uh, a cast member of Lost. Bam. Uh, but anyways, and it can, you know, look like this thing. And then uh, you light it. And all of a sudden, nothing happens. It's because it's a dud. It doesn't matter how well it's looked or how well it's put together. If it isn't, you know, alive inside, if it's not combustible inside, then it's a dud. It's a dead thing. He says it's not enough to look spiritual. It's not enough just for profession. Is there the grace of God that has so gripped your heart that it melts your will and leads you to repentance and love and following Christ? Next notice in verse 18 to 19. Uh, the theologian. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that uh, God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. And so here's one who's got some understanding. They understand theology. They've been through some classes. They can break down, you know, justification, sanctification, glorification. They've got their minds wrapped around it. James looks at it and he goes, okay, you can debate. You can argue. You've got it up here in your head. But even the demons have that. In fact, the demons have better systematic theology than most Christians. Why? Because they actually shudder. They actually know the implications of believing in someone all-powerful. So James is saying in a wow way that sometimes intellectual understanding is as good as demonic faith. You know, what's amazing is that sometimes people operate this way, don't they? They operate in the framework that, okay, God, God might get me. And so they can so modify their behavior and look like the most committed, look like the most driven, look like the most spiritual people. But really, it's all driven based out of a shuddering, based out of a fear relationship with God. They have not realized the grace of God yet. And so then he talks about a live faith. And he gives two illustrations to the alive faith in verse 21 to 24. And he, and he gives the illustration of Abraham. And he takes us back to the story of Abraham. And I love Abraham because he takes and he gives the evidence of Abraham's faith. In Genesis 15, he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it, time goes by, at least 12 to 30 years is the evidence that Abraham had a living, vibrant, active faith. And that he was willing to give of that which he loved the most, namely his own son. But he has this vibrant faith. I think of the rich young ruler... When I think of Abraham, rich young ruler, the story of that in Luke chapter 18. And the rich young ruler rolls up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, uh, well, uh, obey your parents, honor them, you know, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, uh, don't steal, don't covet. And he's like, yes, I'm in. I've done all that. From when I was a kid, I, this teacher had me raise my hand. No, uh, you know, but I've done it, you know, since I was young. And so, uh, you know, and Jesus says, okay, awesome. But all that doesn't get you anywhere because there's one thing you lack. It's like, okay, what do I lack? One thing you lack. And actually, Jesus tells him to do three things. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. But what is the one thing? What is he saying? He's saying, you do not yet have an attachment to me because you have an attachment to all these material things. The one thing that you lack is letting go and grabbing me. It's the one thing you lack. And Abraham proven because, I mean, the first time love is introduced into the Bible is in the story. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And Abraham does it and he lays down what he loves most because he loves God ultimately. I love because then he presents the story of Rahab anticipating, you know, the argument. And what are they, you know, okay, well, that's the father of faith. That's Abraham, the patriarch of faith and of this movement. And then he takes and he says, okay, how about Rahab? And I love Rahab because Rahab was a Gentile, a prostitute, and a woman. And he looks at her faith and he says, and her faith was instantaneously evidence, wasn't it? Because here these guys come to her and they need to escape uh, in the book of Joshua. Here she is in Jericho. And, And what does she do? She hides them at risk to herself. She values their lives and the work of God at the cost of her own life. This amazing picture of this vibrant living faith. Sometimes it takes time. It's a journey. And sometimes it's quick like Rahab. And I love as we look at now the first part of the chapter, I love that James doesn't, you know, take this theme of active, vibrant, living faith that has been touched by the gospel and go, now here's the test that your faith is alive and powerful and active and then turn into like, don't smoke. Like, ah. But he takes it to love because it's a fruit issue. And so, notice with me in verse 1 to 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, uh, uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the situation was this. He used the word synagogue. And so these guys would uh, come into the synagogue. They're about to have service. And then, you know, you'd hear the, 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 the tinkering of the gold, you know. And literally, the, when it says comes in with gold rings, it's golden fingers. I mean, he's covered in it. And so all of a sudden, you know, the sun glistening in the morning as the people are getting ready to worship, you know, fills the sanctuary. And they're like, oh, come sit here. And they give him the best seat in the front. And then somebody stumbles off the street looking for God and literally when it says shabby garments we miss what it means it means literally it's got excrement on it it's torn it's stained with urine it smells so literally he says why don't you go stand in the back 
We got to attend to this guy because you know what? If God, if God can reach this guy, think of the implications because he'll give here, give here. And then, you know, we can really take this ministry to the next level. Or often for the seat of honor, you'd give the man a footstool. Literally in a dishonoring way, you say, sit by the footstool. Not even giving him the footstool. So James looks at this and he looks at the test of love. And the thing is, he looks at this test of love as he says, if you only look and love people based on externals, then it's not true, genuine love. If you only look and you base your love on external things, then basically your love is boiled down to what I can take from this situation, what I can get out of this situation, instead of what I can give to this situation. He says the love of God is completely different. The love of God is is not based on a grid. It is given and it is lavished. It is poured upon and poured upon, mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. And he says, if there's any grid that it's not God's love, if there's any bit of taking, because God's love isn't like that, right? It's not based on taking. God created the world and he created us and he created us not to take from us. He did not need our praise and worship of him. He's perfect and complete, dwelling in perfect community. The Father giving and glorifying the Son. The Son giving, glorifying the Father. The Spirit glorifying the Son. This perfect rhythm of giving, a love that is based on giving. And he created us not because he needed something from us or to take from us, but to share with us that life and that love. So he says, my love is based on that. It's based on giving. And so to believers, uh, the encouragement would be, if Christ has clothed you and fellow believers in his perfect righteousness, then you must clothe one another in that same righteousness. I don't care where they are. You clothe them in the beauty of the crucified Lord. Righteousness provided because of the cross. Do you know if you did that, how gossip would stop, slander would stop, infighting, divisions, bitterness? And for those yet to believe, you have been saved by grace, not that of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It was the complete 100% gift of God. That's why you're here this morning. The grace of God. God. He did not look and go, wow, I could get a really good investment here. Or some, he did not love some future version of you. He loves you right now completely. And so we are to extend to the people in Santa Barbara, to the people in Carpinteria, to the people in Ventura, that same grace that we are to look at people as image bearers of God, created in the image of God. That there isn't to be these divisions there isn't to be this partiality. There isn't to be this, you know, oh man, this person and this person and this grid. Jesus says there's no grid. And then here's something that I love to do in Stockton. Is I believe God's going to save that city. I believe it's going to be radical. And so I look at every person as my future brother and sister. So I want to treat them accordingly. And then in verses 5 to 13, he talks about 
keeping the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and here's the argument that he uses. Is he says, so often, because we're obeying in other areas, we think we're okay to not have to obey in this area. And so because we're not committing adultery, we go, I'm a follower, I'm committed. I'm not committing adultery. He says, no, the, the, the whole law. The whole law, the, the, the whole law is summed up and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And just because you're morally okay in this area does not give you permission to not love people. One of the amazing things that I, I, I find amazing is it says God chose the poor to be embodiments of his grace in this passage. And he's saying, be the same. Choose the poor. What is he saying? You know, so often people come up to us on the street, right? And they ask, hey, can you help me out here? I've got this problem, this story. What is that? That's the poor choosing you. A vibrant living faith is proactive and seeks to do blessing and seeks, seeks to impart that grace that has been lavished upon us. And so it's not just because I'm here and I'm good in this area, but he says, no, you've got to take the whole thing. You've got to take the whole law. Are you failing in one part? You've failed in all of it. And so there are those who profess and they look uh, for security in their profession because they look and they go, I'm good. Look at my moral religious life. I go to church every Sunday. You know, I tithe and my 10% and, you know, I'm doing this and I sign up once a month for, you know, a homeless outreach or something and, and I'm good and I'm not failing in my marriage or I'm not failing as a father or a parent. So I'm good. And Jesus says, but where is your heart radically changed and passionate for people? Like you see them as sheep not having a shepherd where you go to your work. You say, God, you've so ordained before the foundation of the world that I am to be here for such a time as this. Or you look in your neighborhood as your zone that God wants to reach. Or you take your mothering of your kids and you look not as a begrudging thing that you know you, people get to do ministry, but that you are raising up children that will become arrows that you stretch from your bow and send out into the uttermost parts of the earth. I think of the Good Samaritan. Here's the point that James is getting to. The Good Samaritan, you've got the Samaritan who is hated and despised and is the hero of the story. And you've got the young Jewish business guy there laying, bleeding out in the road. And you've got the people who are qualified to help, who should be the ones who help a priest, Right? ordained to be God's representatives to the nation. And yet he walks and passes by. Then the Levite comes and he must be thinking as he's bleeding out, okay, maybe this guy just, the priest had a duty to do. He's on, he's on. But the Levite, he's still God's chosen people to embody him to the nation and to the world. And so now I'm going to be saved and the Levite passes by on the other side. The Levite looking and only wanting to help when it was convenient. And so often people want to bear a burden when they bear no burden at all. The Samaritan comes and the Samaritan takes and gets off of his horse at risk to himself and he takes him and he puts him on 
his horse and takes him to the inn, mends his wound and pays all that he has to see him to life. And so one of the things that James plants in his uh, uh, chapter two of his letter is this idea of grace, is this idea of the gospel because we never, he's not calling people, all right, now what you need to do is you need to get out and help people. You know, right now, get on your steeds and fly out. He says that will never happen. It can never happen. It's the whole point he's getting to until you experience that you're the one bleeding out on the road and that Jesus has paid everything that he's come down and stooped low into the dust of this earth and picked you up. He's wrapped you and he's cared for you and brought you back into healing and wholeness. And so he says, I don't, that's why grace changes us. That's why it has an effect. He's not saying, go out now and just show because you'll go a week or two and you'll be back into the same routine. He says, let grace grip you. Let it melt you and let the fruit burst off of the tree. And so I closed this morning taking a couple of these gospel seeds and bringing them up in the soil. He says there in verse 2, that shabby clothing, that dirty clothing, giving, and they would know there's a correlation to Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, the same language is used, not of the fringe, not of the most immoral person, but of the high priest himself, Joshua the high priest. And there he is, as Zechariah is caught up in a vision of the throne room of God. And here Satan looks at the accuser and he goes, how can you let this guy serve? His garments are covered. They're filthy. You can't serve in the tabernacle in the temple of the Lord covered in such a way. And I love God's response because God's response is, yeah, he's a brand plucked from the fire. He's more ash than he is flesh. You're right about that. But that's who I use. what does he say? He declares to all of heaven, strip him of his filthy garments. Put a robe upon him, turban on his head, sandals on his feet. He provides him a covering and he takes that garment and he takes it away. And we'll come back to that garment. So one of the first things James is doing by using such language is he's saying, Remember that you are the one in the shabby garments. Remember that to God before Christ, that was you. And that God did not show partiality as Romans 2.11 says, but that God came close. He did not put you to the back of the room. He did not put you in the lowly place, but he himself took the lowly place to wash you and to make you clean. Remember that you were covered by him. 2 Corinthians 5, and God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness, the beautifulness, the perfection of God in him. The next thing that he says is he mentions the poor there in verse 5. One of the things is that Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and James is called a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, would write in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. One of the things about that verse is it says that only the spiritually poor can enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because to get in, you have to admit that you have nothing. 
Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That I, what is being poor, it's being bankrupt. It means there is no way for me to pay off my debt. I am absolutely under the weight of the debtor, and yet God, at great, great cost to himself, pays the debt. That the gospel comes especially to the physically poor, doesn't it? Why? Because there's no pretension, there's no pomposity, there's, there's a, a known brokenness. One of the great things I love about the city of Stockton, there's just, there's just this brokenness that's there. And then verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. In John 8, we've got the story Jesus is teaching one day, and, and to set a trap for Jesus, they bring a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. Don't know where the guy was. They throw her down at Jesus' feet and they say, Tell us, because the law says we should stone her. And here Jesus has been teaching a message of grace that he came to live the life that they never could have lived. And that he would die on the cross, the death that they all deserve to die. And so, you know, there's a stirring amongst the crowd. What is he going to say? Is he going to be gracious? Is he going to say, you know what, let's just, you know, just let's all forgive and get along. Because then they'd say, the, you've, the law, you can't represent rightly. You can't, you're not representing God. But if he says, oh yeah, Stoner, then this grace message that he's been preaching is completely, you know, awash. And so what happens is he looks and he says, you know, he who was without sin cast the first stone. They all leave from the oldest to the youngest. And then, you know, he's standing there. He's the one without sin. And she looks up at him and he looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And he says one of the most profound things in all of scripture, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So often we're on that part, oh, go and sin no more and everything, that we miss the weight of what he's saying as he looks at her. And she's there in the dust and he says, I don't condemn you. He does not say that lightly because God is a holy and just God. He can't take sin and sweep it under the carpet. He can't take Joshua the high priest's garment and just pretend like it wasn't filthy. He's holy and he's just. There has to be a payment made. And he knows full well when he looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. He knows. And the only way that he can do that is because he'll be condemned for her. I'll take your sin. I'll reserve that garment and I'll wear it on the cross. For he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes were healed. Do you see the costliness of the grace of God? That we deserve judgment. We, that's what we deserve. That we were running headlong into it, as Romans 3 says, and we didn't want anything else. And yet God stuck his arms into the fire. I think, okay, it's Father's Day. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels leading up to the cross, Jesus always is calling God Father? He's always addressing him, Father, 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 Father. Until the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, he became the sin sacrifice. And the fellowship that existed from eternity past was ruptured and severed. Because he became the object of God's wrath. In a sense, he lost his father in that moment so that we can gain an eternal father.
your wrath that we deserve was laid upon the Son and he willingly laid down his life to have you in right relationship with him, to have you back restored in the right relationship. Have you seen the costliness of grace or have you had a profession at one point in your life and there has been no melting, there's been no warmth of the soul, there's been no regeneration? Or have you as a saint and a Christian gotten used to it? Have you begun in the spirit and yet now you're trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? The answer for mission, the answer for ministering to uh, Carpinteria in Ventura is being melted by this gospel. Because James knows it changes you. It's the only effect that it can have when it truly grips your heart. So if we can have the team up, we'll close out in prayer. Encourage you. Get prayer today. Deal with these things. Wrestle through these things. Don't just let it hit you and uh, become another sermon that you can use and say, all right, uh, I'm good. Went to church. But I beg of you, let it melt you. Ask some questions. Has there been that effect? I'm not saying it's perfection. I'm saying sometimes it's like Abraham and and that seeds in and, and finally there's a sprout. Has there been the grace of God that has so gripped your heart that you're a worshiper first? He wants to do that now. Remember the communion, his body broken. He became broken so that you could be made whole. The only way. Jesus, thank you. Praise you. Love you. You're beautiful. There's none like you. Pray, Lord, for this beautiful, wonderful people that they would know your righteousness, that they would rejoice in it. God, I pray that they use scripture as even James chapter one says as a mirror to look in. So God, show us who we are right now as we worship and praise and adore you. We love you, we love you, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.